Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Listeners, welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us this week for Christy's episode. Yes, do I have a story for you? But before we get into that, I want to ask, how important are your friends to you? Meh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) She likes them all but those redheaded ones, I think. (laughs) Exactly. They talk you into some crazy stuff. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) But even for our listeners, I just want you to contemplate how far would you go to help a friend? Thelma and Louise far? Yeah, ride or dies, right? Yeah. Today we are looking into a cold case that was finally solved because the victim's best friend refused to give up on her. Oh, good job. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable what happens during this case. This cold case took 24 years to solve. It would take over two decades before justice would finally be served. That's a long time to obsess over a case. It really is. But if it's your best friend, you just can't let it go. No. And for me, I feel like the close friendships that I have been blessed with in my life mean so much to me. And knowing that one woman fought so hard to bring her friend's killer to justice really strikes a chord with me. Not all heroes wear capes, but this woman absolutely should. You're going to love her. Because we are discussing a case that went unsolved for such a long time, we are going to start a little differently this time. Instead of starting with the life of the dirtbag, we are going to start around the time of the murder and then work from there as the case was investigated, stalled, and then ultimately solved because of one woman's dedication to her friend. At that point, we will discuss in more detail the sick son of a dirtbag that we are covering. Ooh, I like this way it's told. Yeah, you often do this more than me. I like to start right from the beginning. (laughs) birth of that gross little dirtbag and go from there. And I like to tell it how it comes out. Yeah, you do the news headlines and work back. Yep. So maybe you'll appreciate the way I've structured this episode today. Our victim was the beautiful and ebullient Angela Marie Samoda, who often went by the name Angie. So that's how I will refer to her. Angie was born on September 19th, 1964 in Alameda, California to loving parents Betty Ruth, and Frank Samoda. She was the youngest of five children and was adored by her entire family. She was the baby of the family. She was. And I believe it was one of her brothers who later said that they all just viewed her like a little star. Aww. She was very well loved. At the time of her death in 1984, at the tender age of 20, Angie was attending SMU, which is Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. She was super smart and had taken on a heavy load in school, by taking a double major in computer science and electrical engineering. Oh, those aren't light classes. No, they were both challenging courses. It was at SMU that Angie met a woman named Sheila Wysocki. Neither of them knew it at the time, but this new friendship would be the only reason why Angie's murderer would ultimately be caught. The women met on the first day of school. They had been assigned as roommates by the university and also joined the same sorority. Zeta Ta Alpha. Sheila has spoken openly about Angie and her case. She said that when they first met, Angie was dating a guy that she didn't really care for, 
Angie and this boyfriend broke up after the first semester of school, and it was after that that the two women became super close. She said they both grew up without their fathers being a part of their lives, and they kind of bonded over that shared experience. Funny how that happens between friendships. Yeah, it can sometimes be the most random things that will bond you. Mm -hmm. Sheila described Angie by saying, quote, Angie had a beautiful smile, the biggest I've ever seen, the type of smile that would light up her whole face. She was very vivacious and friendly, and one of the few girls in the computer science and electrical engineering department. That makes a lot of sense at the time. Mm-hmm. She was the triple threat. Great personality, real cute, and smart. And you can tell by her pictures that she had a zest for life. She was young and looked so genuinely energetic and happy in all her pictures. So I feel like this description by Sheila is totally accurate. Angie worked hard for her achievements. She would often stay up late into the night to stay on top of her schoolwork. Sheila commented that they were opposite in a lot of ways. Sheila struggled in school because of dyslexia, and personality-wise, she was friendly but didn't ever want to be the center of attention. In January of 1984, Angie started dating a guy named Benjamin McCall. The couple seemed quite happy being in a relationship with one another. On Friday, October 12, 1984, Angie was hanging out with her friend Anna Cadella. They went to a late lunch with one of their university professors and then went back to Angie's condo. They made plans to go out that evening, so they took a quick nap before getting ready to venture out. Angie put on a black silk jumpsuit and black heels. I'm sure she looks stunning. Yeah, that sounds like a rocking outfit. Uh-huh, and she was a gorgeous woman. Angie asked her boyfriend Benjamin to join them, but he had to be up early the next morning for a business meeting, so he declined. So is this a new boyfriend than the one that Sheila didn't like at the beginning? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they had started dating in January, and this was now October. Okay. Another friend, Russell Buchanan, was planning to join them. He walked over to Angie's place, but after meeting up with the girls, he realized he was underdressed in comparison. The three of them made a quick stop at Russell's so he could change before they went out. The trio enjoyed their evening, going to a restaurant and then to clubs. As the night went on, they decided they wanted to go to a private dance club called the Rio Room. No one in their group had a membership, but her boyfriend did. So Angie called Benjamin and asked if he could get them in. He made a call and the group were admitted into the club. But again, Benjamin declined joining them. Being the lively person she was, people noticed Angie. It was later reported that while at the club, Angie was going from table to table, talking to people like she knew them all. She was just so friendly. I love that kind of personality. It just draws people in. I wish I could be that personality, but I'm not. But I just admire it so much in other people that they can just be out there with everybody. Yeah, I totally agree. It's definitely admirable. Yeah, you can just feel the energy off of her. Yeah, just the positivity. She did seem really amazing. Angie was driving that night and agreed to give her two friends a ride home. Around 1 o'clock a.m., now October 13th, she dropped off Russell at his residence on Matilda Street in Lower Greenville. His home was only a five-minute walk to Angie's condo on Amsbury Drive. Russell said that he went straight to bed after Angie dropped him off. Next, she dropped Anna off at her house. Instead of going straight home right afterwards, Angie decided to stop at Benjamin's apartment to say goodnight. She got to his place around 1.30 a.m., was he still up studying or was she going to wake him up to say goodnight? I think she woke him up to say goodnight. <laughs> when Benjamin came to the door, Angie lovingly teased that she had shown up to bug him before going home. They chatted for a few minutes and then Angie left. That was his story? Yes. 
Benjamin received a phone call from Angie shortly afterwards at 1.45 a.m. Angie said she was home, but she asked him to talk to her because she had let a man come into her condo to use the bathroom and make a phone call. Angie asked Benjamin if he knew if there was a payphone at the convenience store close to her place. My guess is she was nervous and wanted to get this guy out of her house. She was so nice that she may have wanted to be able to assure this unknown man that there was a payphone close by for him to make his call. I just hate it when somebody is so kind and they want to take care of somebody. And then the dirtbag turns out to be a rotten scumbag. And takes advantage of that kindness. Yeah. All of a sudden, Angie got off the phone with Benjamin. He said it was abruptly. Before she hung up, she promised that she would call him right back. Did he head right over? Not yet. Benjamin waited for a bit, but Angie never called him back. He tried calling her, but she didn't answer her phone. He quickly got dressed and headed out the door to check if his girlfriend was okay. Why wasn't she answering her phone? He grew worried. It was the middle of the night, and he knew there was a stranger with her inside her condo. As he drove in his truck towards Angie's, Benjamin continued to try and call her on his cell phone. He had one of the newest cell phone versions for his work. Cell phones were not a common thing yet. Again, she didn't answer any of his attempted calls. Benjamin arrived at Angie's around 2 o'clock in the morning. He beat on her front door and tried to go in, but it was locked. He ran to the back, but that door was also locked. Likely thinking that maybe she had shown the guy where the payphone was, Benjamin hopped in his truck and rushed to the convenience store to see if she was there, but still no sign of her. He bolted back to her condo. When he spotted her car in the parking lot, he knew he needed to call the police. His call was recorded at 2.17 a.m. and was later played for the jury during the murder trial. Officers arrived at 2.40 a.m. and first obtained a key from the condo manager. And I just thought, can you imagine being Benjamin waiting for them to get a key? I would be wanting them to just kick down the door at that point. Did Angie often lock her door after she went into her own house? That I don't know. We all have those little idiosyncrasies that kind of tip off that something's wrong. Well, and if someone is coming to use my phone and go to the washroom... or You're not locking them in with you. You're not locking them in. Definitely. Yeah. It had been almost an hour since Benjamin last spoke to his girlfriend. I'm sure it felt even longer for him. That would be a really long time. But I'm not totally crossing him off yet. This is all according to him. This is according to him. And his phone call to the police. Police later testified that when they searched Angie's residence... They found her lifeless body laying on her bed, face up, with her eyes open. Her legs were hanging off the edge of the bed. She was naked and covered in blood. Ugh. The entire scene was a bloody one. Along with all over the bed, there was blood found in the bathroom adjacent to the bedroom where she was found. Beside her bed was one shoe and the clothing she had been wearing. The other shoe was found in the living room. And I wonder if the shoe in the living room suggested a struggle. Was she first attacked there and then taken into the bedroom? One lonely shoe is always so creepy to me. It really is. Shoes need to go in pairs. Yeah. So that just seems like a struggle because you don't usually take one shoe off in one place and then another shoe off in the other. Right. And is the blood in the bathroom from the murderer cleaning up afterwards? The reports didn't really say. Okay. But I would assume so. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't like a struggle that it was suggested in the bathroom. No, I don't believe so. Okay. I believe the attack was just on the bed. The forensic pathologist who performed Angie's autopsy later testified in detail about her injuries. I will summarize that account from the court documents that I found. Angie sustained 18 stab wounds to her chest and breast area. 
That's a lot of rage for a stranger. It really is. The weapon was a single-edged knife or knife-like object. Many of her wounds overlapped, so it sounds like it was just a frenzy. Eight of the stab wounds entered Angie's heart, and five of those entered her heart and left lung. She had two stab wounds that went through her sternum, which would have taken considerable force to do. The deepest wound went four to seven inches and completely penetrated her heart. There was also no way to determine in which order these stabs were administered. As I mentioned, the crime scene was a bloody one, which included Angie's body. She had dried blood on her chest and neck. Blood had been smeared on her face and leg. There was also blood spatter on her body from the force of the stabbings. The blood evidence also indicated that while she was being stabbed, someone held an object over her face, presumably a hand. My guess was the murderer put his hand over her mouth to quiet her screams as he brutally ended her life. Because she's in a condo and other people would have heard. Exactly. Angie's blood alcohol level was 0.09 and her vitreous alcohol level was 0.30, which I believe they take from your eye. Angie had been out with friends, so it wasn't surprising that she had alcohol in her system. I'm not an expert on blood alcohol limits, but I assume at this level, she would have been mildly impaired, just above the legal driving limit, not fall on your face drunk. She would have been very aware of what was happening. She's approaching that range where she could have slowed reactions. Right. And maybe that's why there's not as many defensive wounds. Maybe. Or it's just the sheer fact that it's some stranger that you are being nice to is now suddenly attacking you. And it seemed like it was a very fast and forceful attack, too. Right. Because this has only been an hour since she was talking with her boyfriend. Why would she let him into her apartment? I know. Today, for sure, we are so aware of the dangers of that. But back in the 80s, she's just being so nice. She was a little bit inebriated. But I think once she let him in, she knew she had made a mistake. And that's why she called Benjamin and was like, talk to me. She just needed him on the phone. There was viscous material found and collected from Angie's mouth and vagina. The sample from her mouth was not semen, but the sample from her vagina was. This semen was discussed at length during the court proceedings but I'll just give you the quick rundown. When someone is alive, seminal fluid and sperm breaks down from its own enzymes and vaginal enzymes within one to three hours. The semen retrieved from Angie's vaginal cavity had not yet liquefied. The sample contained a high concentration of phosphates and many intact sperm. This confirmed that intercourse had taken place at or near the time of her death. Evidence also concluded that after intercourse, Angie never stood back up. She remained on the bed, allowing the seminal fluid to stay in place. There were no injuries to her cervix or external genitalia, but that is not always a common thing found in rape victims. It was determined with certainty that Angie had been raped and viciously stabbed to death, and the rape happened almost at the same time as death, likely moments before. And I thought, what horrific last moments for a person to endure. That would have been so awful. Police immediately looked to the boyfriend, Benjamin, as a suspect. See, told you he would be the first suspect. <laughs> you were right. Often a woman is murdered by an intimate partner, so they weren't wrong for at least looking into him. And it's not unheard of for a murderer to stage discovering their victim so they can inject themselves into the case and try to come off as innocent. Thinking, how could they kill them if they found them type mentality. And it conveniently allows them to explain why their evidence is at the crime scene. Exactly. That's mm -hmm. true, too. Mind you, it was her boyfriend, so his DNA could be all over the place. Right. 
Despite looking into Benjamin, Russell Buchanan quickly became law enforcement's number one suspect. It sounds like Benjamin was cleared fairly quickly. Russell was 23 years old. He was an architect and knew the victim well enough to spend the night out dancing with her and one other woman. Angie's friend Sheila said that Russell was a shy guy. She said that Angie was good at networking and thought that Russell would be a good connection to have. Sheila said she couldn't pinpoint why, but Russell made her feel uncomfortable. Sheila later reflected that at the time, she was so traumatized over her friend's death that everyone made her uncomfortable. But if it was Russell, then why would Angie say that there was a stranger at her apartment? That's true. Why not just say, hey, Russell's here? Because it sounds like the four of them knew each other. It leaves a lot of questions for sure. Sheila recalls the moment that she found out that her dear friend was murdered. She said the phone rang, so she ran into her room to answer it. On the phone was their mutual friend, Barbara. Barbara was crying and saying that there had been an accident. Barbara couldn't stop crying, and for some reason, even unknown to Sheila, she asked, quote, Is she dead? When Sheila went to the police station to answer questions for the detectives, she said the police had Angie's folder out, and she could see pictures. Oh, that would have been awful. It really was. Sheila will never forget this experience. She said, quote, They had pictures. There's one I remember of Angie on the bed. There was blood everywhere, and her eyes were open. To this day, I still remember how horrible it was. It was quite traumatic. Yeah, no kidding. About this experience, Sheila said she went numb. It would take around a year until she said she could start feeling things again. You would just have to go numb because you couldn't deal with all those emotions. If you can't deal with them, then no emotion is better than that roller coaster ride of emotions. It's true. And they're just really young adults. They're kind of living their best life right now. They're just in college, their sorority. They were not expecting to deal with something like this at that age. Yeah. We never are at any age, but I feel like it would be even harder at that age when your friends mean so much to you. And this would have been just shoving your own mortality right in their face. Oh, for sure. I'm sure it was hard for a lot of the students at that university. About her friend being murdered, Sheila said, quote, Angie's murder was the most traumatic event of my life, and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I slept on the floor in my mom's room for quite a while. I had changed that day. My innocence was gone. I never went back to college. How would you ever feel safe? You wouldn't. Because she was in her own place. It wasn't like she was out and about. It was a place where she was supposed to be safe. Right. And then you start thinking, if it can happen to my friend, then it could happen to me. I can see why she had to sleep on her mom's floor. Yeah. And quit college. Mm -hmm. You could just really see how she said she changed that day. Her whole life did. With police encouragement, Sheila had a few conversations with Russell. She knew he was at the top of the suspect list because police told her they were certain he did it. The purpose of having Sheila meet with their suspect was to see if Russell would tell Sheila anything different than he was telling the authorities about that horrible night. So they were trying to catch him in a lie. Sheila was willing to do anything she could to help. She even went as far as to have dinner with Russell, despite her mother protesting the idea. But she would do anything for her best friend. Sheila was extremely nervous, though. She said she kept thinking to herself, quote, I'm sitting next to a murderer. And was this when she was getting all the weird vibes from him and feeling uncomfortable around him? Yes. But was it because the police had planted that idea that he was the murderer? Could have been. Because prior to this all happening, had she felt uncomfortable around him? She didn't say when. She just said she had a weird feeling from him. But I think that that line would blur even for her. Because I don't think she had met him that many times prior. Okay. 
Despite her attempts to get new information out of Russell, his story never wavered. Police continued to bring Russell in for questioning and administered a lie detector test on him. Eventually, Russell stopped cooperating with law enforcement and hired a hotshot famous lawyer named Richard Racehorse Haynes. Oh, that's quite the name. Racehorse in quotations, obviously. (laughs) And he got that because this lawyer was known for defending the guilty and was good at it. However, Russell wouldn't need a lawyer's help because police would not be able to piece together enough evidence to prove that Russell had killed Angie. Sadly, this case would turn cold and go unsolved until 2008, 24 years later. So now you've got me wondering what information Sheila is going to come up with that's going to crack the case wide open. Well, I'm going to tell you. Despite the case going cold, Sheila never stopped fighting for justice. For years, she continued to meet with the detective on Angie's case. They met so often to discuss the case that in 1988, four years after the murder, when Sheila got married, she invited this detective to her wedding. Oh, wow. They really got to know one another. We're going to fast forward 20 years from the time of the murder to 2004. For 20 years, Angie's family, friends, and loved ones had to go about their lives not knowing for sure what happened to Angie. That is until what some may refer to as a heavenly miracle happened. Sheila was living in Tennessee with her husband and two sons. One night, Sheila was studying her Bible, which she said was hard to do because of her dyslexia. Suddenly, Sheila looked up and to the right of her, she saw Angie. Sheila said she questioned what was happening. She wondered if she was dreaming. Angie didn't say anything to Sheila, just smiled. Ooh, goosebumps. Right? Yeah, it gave me goosebumps when I read that too. About this experience, Sheila said, quote, I don't know if I believe in ghosts, but I have a lot of faith. And I believe that there are messages. And at that moment, I thought, it's time. I leaned over to my nightstand and picked up the phone and called the Dallas Police Department, just like that. Wow. When the Dallas police answered, Sheila asked to talk to someone in the cold case division. She was told that they didn't have a division for cold cases and that she would have to speak with homicide. Sheila left a message for the detective that she used to meet with to discuss Angie's case, the one who came to her wedding. Surprisingly, he never called her back. Sheila says that she called upwards of 700 times, but he never answered or returned one of those calls. And I just wanted to note that these calls were not one right after the other. They spanned over a long period of time. 700 calls took months. Okay. But that is dedication. Seven hundred. Would you make 700 phone calls for me? No. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> that was a quick no. <laughs> You're supposed to at least like think about it and say maybe. That was a really quick no, Melissa. <laughs> 700? That's a lot of time, Christy. All I'm going to say is how rude. <laughs> I would make 700 calls for you. No, I wouldn't make 700 calls. I would go down there and be like, pay attention to me. True. But she is living in Tennessee now. (laughs) Well, then, we learn who our friends are when we're talking about murder. 700 calls and she wasn't like irate and I would be going down. Oh, yeah. She was definitely persistent. I would make the trip or I'd be calling higher ups. I wouldn't be leaving the same message on the same guy's machine. Well, what she does is even better than showing up at the Dallas police station. Sheila felt like the police were hoping that she would just drop it and stop pestering them. But she decided she was not going to take no for an answer. She was motivated by seeing Angie. There had to be a reason for her to appear to her that evening. Sheila started to do her own investigating. She gathered as much information as she could about any rape that took place in the same area around the time of Angie's death. 
Police would not share Angie's file with her since she wasn't in law enforcement. One day, while complaining to the security guard at their gated community about how she was being dismissed by the police, the guard turned to her and said she would make a great private investigator. This sparked something in Sheila, and that very same day, Sheila told her husband that she was going to do it. She would become a private investigator. Wow. Sheila was in her early 40s now, but she hoped that if she became a PI, the police would have to take her seriously. This queen found a security company to sponsor and train her. This was required to get your license in Tennessee at the time. Even though school was challenging for her, Sheila studied her butt off with the help of her family and easily passed the licensing exam. That is a crazy amount of dedication. Right? Like this just isn't finding an old note or some evidence in a drawer somewhere. She's like actively trying to solve this case herself. She really is. What I really respect about her is right after she saw Angie, she immediately grabbed the phone and called the police department. The second she had in her mind, I'm going to be a private investigator, she ran home and told her husband. Like she didn't think about it. She just got the ideas and went for it. Just so much conviction. Yes. With her new status as a private investigator, Sheila again reached out to the Dallas police. I believe this was now 2006. They finally assigned a detective to the case, Linda Crum. Sheila felt like they just gave in to appease her and finally get her off their backs after years of pressuring them. Thankfully, this detective took Sheila seriously and reopened Angie's case. Sheila had previously been told that the evidence tied to Angie's case had been lost in a major flood. Detective Crum studied Angie's case and was able to find the evidence. It turned out that it wasn't destroyed in the flood, and it was still in possession of the police department. Do you think that was just a random excuse of, I don't want to go down to the basement to look for it? Or had there actually been a flood? There had been a huge flood in Texas at that time. Okay. It was legitimate. There was a lot of flooding going on. I can't remember the year. And a lot of stuff had been destroyed. Okay, but hers in particular hadn't been. It had just been assumed to have been destroyed. Right. This was a major breakthrough because in 1984, DNA technology was just in its infancy. Oh, and they had all that semen. Yes. Over two decades later, DNA evidence now played a major role in solving criminal cases, especially ones pertaining to rape and homicide. Because of careful evidence collection years earlier, Sheila and Detective Crum now had blood evidence... Angie's fingernail clippings, and a semen sample from her rape kit. The samples were sent for DNA testing, but it would be a long process to get the results, because I assume active cases take precedence over testing cases that are over 20 years old. Which makes sense. Mm -hmm. The results came back in 2008, four years after Angie appeared to Sheila. Detective Crum called up Sheila, and when she answered the phone, Detective Crum exclaimed, quote, We got him! Sheila was expecting the detective to say next, we got Russell Buchanan, but she didn't. So it's got to be somebody's profile that's on a database somewhere. Yes. Instead, she was told a name that she had never heard before. The person who matched the semen sample left at her friend's crime scene was a man named Donald Bess. Donald was quickly arrested and put on trial. So it was some random stranger? It really was. Wow. Don't open your doors, ladies. I know. It's just so sad that kindness was repaid by murder. Exactly. Yeah. In my brain, I'm being like, don't be kind. But we want to be kind. Like Angie was such an example of the type of person that we should aim to be. 
But unfortunately, this dirtbag took advantage of that. Which makes him a huge dirtbag. Yeah. So let's talk about him. To no surprise, this monster was a well-known dirtbag to law officials. Hence why his DNA is on profile. Yep. His criminal history will likely frustrate and anger you. But let's start at the beginning. Donald Andrew Best Jr. was born on September 1, 1948, in Jefferson County, Arkansas. Donald was the oldest of four children. His brother Gary testified on his behalf during court proceedings, and that is how we are able to know what we do about his upbringing. Donald's father was a traveling salesman who sold encyclopedias. They ended up moving excessively while the children were growing up, so much so that Donald attended 13 different schools. That's a lot of instability. It really is. Because of their transient situation, Donald found it hard to make real connections. His only real friend was his brother, Gary. And that would have been really tough as a kid. Donald's father later began working in construction, and the family was able to settle down. Donald's mother stayed home to care for the four children when they were young. However, at times, she was no picnic. It was said that Donald's mother was manipulative and would fly off the handle over the tiniest infractions. When their father would get home from work, their mother would order him to discipline the kids with spankings. Apparently, Donald being the oldest, bore the brunt of this discipline. It was said that he would get punished for things he didn't even do. It was described as unfair and excessive punishment. After the kids sustained their punishments, Donald's mother would say, quote, I didn't mean they were that bad. Oh, puts a new swing on wait till your father gets home. Right? And then watch them get beat. And then, oh, I didn't say they were that bad. Wow. Yeah, she's a real treat. I couldn't find super detailed accounts of these punishments in the court documents that I found, but I feel like it could have been worse than it sounded. Even though the words child abuse were not used, Gary said they were not abused. Donald's brother Gary admitted that he, meaning Gary, was his mother's clear favorite, and that Donald had been his father's favorite until their little sister was born, and then it was like, Donald who? I am sure this would have been a clear form of rejection for Donald. Everyone saw him go from hero to zero with his dad. That's sad. A big form of rejection. Growing up, Donald participated in Boy Scouts and played football. However, he quit football because he couldn't handle people yelling at him. When the kids got a bit older, Donald's mother began working nights. At this time, she also became addicted to alcohol. She was said to be self-centered and mean when she drank. Donald's mother reportedly had some form of mental illness, but Donald was never diagnosed nor suspected of having one. The kids were left to mainly take care of themselves and one another. At first, Donald mostly took care of his siblings until his sister got old enough to take care of the youngest brother. But Gary said that Donald always looked out for him. Donald eventually grew up and got married in 1969. He was 21 and his bride was just 18. Things started out good between them, but shortly after being married, Donald's true colors began to show. Donald became violent and treated his new bride in a demeaning fashion. When his wife was five months pregnant with their daughter, Donald threw her against a wall, causing her to hit her head against the wall, giving her two black eyes. Was that the first incidence of violence? I don't know that, but it was one of the ones that was brought up in the trial. I was just wondering, because so often, pregnancy is the trigger for the violence to start. It could have been. And she got pregnant pretty early on in the marriage. When she was eight months pregnant, a woman came up to her in the street and said, quote, I am so sorry. I did not know he was married. I did not know he was having a child. And to me, this means he was clearly cheating on her. That would be so random. Right? Eight months pregnant? Oh. 
Five months after the baby was born, during another violent outburst, Donald kicked the crib so hard it flew from one side of the room to the other. The baby was inside the crib. What? He was angry that the baby was crying, and instead of picking that baby up and comforting her, this was his solution. No way. Yes. What a dirtbag. Uh-huh. At this time, Donald's wife was pregnant with their son. No. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, she mustered up enough courage, and once her terror of a husband left for work, she packed up, divorced his ugly butt, and left him for good. Good for her. Their marriage only lasted three years. And this would have been like 70s. Thankfully. Yeah. I don't think things would have ended well if they had stayed. When their son was born, Donald offered to take their son, but said he didn't want the girl. The ex-wife declined. Donald paid $25 in child support for a while, but didn't have anything to do with his kids after that. He even went as far as giving up his parental rights completely, probably to save himself 25 bucks. It was clear that Donald was a dirtbag in his personal life, but he was even worse when no one was looking. Donald was truly a predatory, disgusting dog who had no regard for anything but his own needs. Sadly, Angie was not the only woman who Donald terrorized, and the judicial system was fully aware of this fact long before he ever set his sights on Angie. And this is what's so frustrating about this case. I just find that so frustrating when they're known to law enforcement and the court systems, but nothing is done about it, or their hands are tied and they can't do anything preventative or long-lasting about it. Well, this one is super infuriating when you find out what they actually do do about it. And it's not the first time we've seen this in a case. And that's where it just gets so angering because it's not a one-off. This happens often. I will share a few of the other instances that we know about, but I am quite confident that there are many more victims that never came forward. Some women who were violated by Donald testified in court, but names are protected in the documents. In September of 1977, Donald showed up at a woman's apartment door in Houston at 11 p.m. to ask her out. The woman said no. He then asked her for a glass of water. The woman let him in and obliged. Donald drank the water, but then, instead of leaving, he locked the door and grabbed the woman. He covered her mouth so she couldn't scream. And I thought this is exactly what he did with Angie. Yeah. And see, he locked the door Mm -hmm. so that he wouldn't be disrupted. Yeah, and covered her mouth. Mm Mm-hmm. The woman tried to bite his hand and get away, but she quickly realized she could not overpower him. He was too large in stature. The woman said, quote, he threw me down in the floor and I just gave up. Obviously, I couldn't fight him. She said she began to focus, quote, mainly just how to survive the whole thing. It was pretty obvious he was going to rape me and there was nothing I could do about it. Oh, that sense of helplessness would be awful. Oh, that would be so hard to get over if you ever could. The woman was right. Donald did rape her on her own bed. When he finished, he stood up and she began to fear for her life. He looked at her and said, quote, what am I going to do with you now? Somehow, this woman convinced Donald that she was not going to call the police and he left. Terrified and in shock, the woman managed to call a friend for help and did go to the police. Can you imagine how terrified she must have been? This rapist knew where she lived and could come back. Yeah, I would not be able to stay there. I would have to move. Well, police were able to find Donald because this woman remembered meeting her attacker a few weeks prior to her attack. They even knew who did it? Yes. She was just moving into the apartment complex, and Donald was leaving a note on the door of a different apartment. 
He offered to help this woman move her boxes, but she insistently told him no. She was already picking up on his bad vibes. Right. And then he showed up weeks later asking her out. She says, no. Well, can I at least get a cup of water? Donald was picked up and charged with sexual assault and was linked to an aggravated kidnapping and rape charge in Harris County. While this woman testified of her attack during Donald's later trial, he stared at her and repeatedly ran his finger over his top lip. Get the heck out, Donald. No way. Yeah. What a creep. Yeah. What a lowlife dirtbag. Oh, that gives you chills. Right? It just shows what a pig he is. He just couldn't even contain himself. No. Nope. He was like licking his lips for her. Yeah, running his finger over his lips oh. while she's testifying and talking about the things that he did. He was probably loving it. He was probably getting off on it. Probably. I wish someone would have seen this and broke his finger. Or smashed his face in. Yeah. Even though we don't condone violence here at Buried Motives. But I really wish someone would have. Broke that (laughs) disgusting little finger off. And like you said, smashed him in the face. Yeah, that's just gross. Yeah. And just how bold of him to do that in the middle of the courtroom. While a jury's watching him. Right. And this is his later murder trial. And deciding his future. I hope they all saw it. I hope so. Someone did because it was in the documents. After her testimony, this woman stayed and sat with Angie's family for support. Sheila also made the over 1,000 kilometer or 650 mile trip to be present at Donald's trial for her friend of many years ago. She referred to Donald as the beast. Earlier that same year, as the first incident that I just told you about, in January of 1977, Donald attacked another woman. He kidnapped her with the intent of raping her. Donald had come up behind this woman and put his hand over her mouth. He showed her that he had a knife and threatened to cut her. He led her to a blue truck with a white camper and forced her to get inside. While doing this, he said to her, quote, You're the victim of my aggression. You get in that truck. The victim of my aggression? Mm-hmm. Was he trying to be poetic or something? I don't know. That's such an odd statement. But that would be terrifying because if someone's forcing you into their truck and saying you're going to be the victim of my aggression, you know it's not going to be good. No, you would just dread what was going to come next. Yes, because he's a big guy. And could easily overpower women. Donald blatantly told this woman that he was going to rape her and ordered her to direct him to her house. She tried to misdirect him, so he went through her purse until he found her address. He warned her that if anyone else was inside her apartment when they got there, he would kill them. Once they arrived at her home, Donald forced the woman to undress and then raped her. He then took her back to where he abducted her near her vehicle and threatened her that if she told anyone, he would make her pay. And he knows where she lives. So she would have been terrified. Exactly. Again, this brave woman went to the police and later helped identify him at the police station, along with two more of his victims, one of them being the first lady I told you about. And this all happened before the trial. Yes, this is 1977. This happens before Angie's murder. So does he do any jail time? He does, which we'll get right into. At this time, Donald was described as being between 25 and 30 years old. He was actually 29, 230 pounds, six feet tall with a large frame, gold-rimmed glasses, a beard and mustache, and dark brown graying hair. Donald was convicted in 1978 of one count aggravated rape, one count aggravated kidnapping, and one count sexual assault. And I believe he pled guilty. For these charges, Donald was sentenced to 25 years in prison. 
okay, so obviously something happens because that would have made him still in prison when Angie got murdered. Right. And that's where the frustrating part comes in. Donald only served six years and was released back into the public in 1984. For good behavior? Well, for whatever behavior. But that was the same year he got away with Angie's brutal rape and murder. Because all they had taught him was don't leave witnesses behind. Yeah. Oh. How is serving only six years even remotely rational when it comes to a 25-year sentence? Especially when sex crimes are involved. Because we know those are the hardest to rehabilitate. Oh, for sure. And they escalate. Yeah. It's just always so shocking to me. It really is. I thought, did law officials honestly think that he would not reoffend after six years in prison? It only took him mere months to attack Angie. And who knows how many other victims he had even before or after her. There's no way he's just stopping. No, he doesn't just stop. Only eight months after killing Angie, Donald was again arrested and convicted of a different rape in the Houston area. He was given another 25-year sentence. This is so maddening. If he was just made to serve his initial sentence, he would not have murdered Angie nor raped the other women he did. Why even give him a sentence if it's meaningless? This really got me fired up. I do not understand. 25 years should be 25 years. Right. Maybe take six years off for good behavior. Don't only make him serve six. It's ridiculous. It's mind boggling. Donald was serving his time in Harris County for rape when his DNA profile was matched from the national database to Angie's cold case. Along with these testimonies from his rape victims, Texas officers and prison employees also testified about what a lousy prisoner Donald was. So I don't even know how he got out after that first six years. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it was on good behavior if he was a lousy prisoner. Right. It was said that Donald had total disrespect for any type of law enforcement. He would say whatever he wanted and would speak with great vulgarity towards officers and prison staff, especially the women. Donald didn't care what he got in trouble for. He would refuse to line up if he wasn't feeling like it. He wouldn't contribute to his assigned work duties. He would leave his workout equipment laying around and wouldn't stop washing his shirt in the sink when asked to stop. That's really random. That was random. He also got into a fight and used a dustpan and broom as weapons. He stole food and was caught with contraband type foods. Just to name a few of the infractions, there was a long list. On one occasion, Donald got into a verbal altercation with a female prison guard after she instructed him to close a door. He snapped at her, quote, B, I don't have to do a GD thing you tell me to do. I've got a life sentence and no one's going to tell me what to do. People said that Donald never asked for anything. He demanded it. He was incredibly arrogant. And I wrote, insert puke face emoji, because that's how I feel about him. Where does he get all of this sense of entitlement from? I don't know. Or he's just demanding it now because he felt left out as a child. Probably I didn't get it. So now I have to take it. Another time, Donald complained about chest pains. While seeing the prison nurse, Donald got into an argument with a security officer and really started going off on him. The nurse said that if he was really in pain, he would not be able to yell like that. This angered Donald and he said to her, quote, Black mother effer B, you don't have to talk to me like that, and then left the clinic. I honestly struggle to find any redeeming qualities with this dirtbag. People who encountered Donald often commented that they could sense evil when around him. And I believe that. Although these prison infractions were super red flags, Donald was only really given minor punishments for his behavior. Although one time he did end up in solitary confinement for a 15-day period. Otherwise, just little slaps on the wrist. Donald's defense team tried their hardest to defend Donald. 
They argued that Donald's misbehaviors in prison were minor, even though many of his derogatory actions were towards the women guards and employees. They also argued that just because Donald's semen was found in Angie's vaginal cavity, it did not mean that he stabbed her. (sighs) Yeah, this made me angry. Are you kidding me? That is the most ridiculous argument I have heard. Yeah. What planet are you living on? Well, I raped her, but somebody else came in right after and murdered them. Well, they're trying to make it sound like, oh, they just had sex and then she was murdered. Yeah, I don't think so. Conveniently at the same time. Right? In his closing arguments, one of Donald's attorneys, Robert McClung, said, quote, Do we need to become such a knee-jerk society that just because we find semen, does it mean that person is a murderer? What's even more tragic is if we focus on righting a wrong and create another wrong. I had to take a deep calming breath when I read that. I know it's their job to defend their client, but come on, how do you sleep at night? The evidence clearly proved that Angie was stabbed during or immediately after intercourse. And I wonder if this Robbie McClung believed the cow dung he was spewing and would have allowed his own daughter, if he had one, to be locked in the same room with the man he was defending, since he was so opposed to knee-jerk reactions. Right. I did find it interesting, though, that when we visited the police museum and had a conversation with one of the officers there that said how the timing of DNA is actually throwing off crime scene investigation because we're getting so good at identifying DNA at crime scenes and you can't necessarily place when it happened. But it sounds like in this case, it was very clear that the semen happened at the same time as death. Right, because it hadn't liquefied, it hadn't disintegrated. Right. But I can see how that would be an issue in some crime scenes, because you might be in someone's house, and then six months later, your DNA can still be found there. Right. And so it was interesting to have that conversation with this officer and his explanation of how that can happen. But this does not seem to be the case with this particular case. No, not at all. He would have had to literally raped her and someone had to have been there seconds later to stab her. Not likely. No. Don't have a knee-jerk reaction. Let's not make another wrong. I just wanted to slap his head against the wall. (laughs) These poor people that have to defend these dirtbags. Yeah. Okay, I get that. But you don't have to say dirtbag comments like that. (laughs) It's true. But I mean, that's their job to defend them. What are they going to come up with? Yeah. How do you defend these dirtbags? But how ridiculous. Oh, just because we find semen, it's a murderer? So every man in the world is a murderer. That's what you're trying to say we're saying. I wonder if it's like a secret tactic of like, let me make the most ridiculous comments that are just going to enrage people. And then they'll secretly want to kill him even more. Because I know he's guilty. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought of that. (laughs) Let's make this so ridiculous (laughs) that people really want to see him get it. Yeah, I hope that's what it was. The knee jerk comment was a little bit much. Yeah. Had it been a knee-jerk reaction to protect other people, then maybe Angie didn't have to die. Exactly. Maybe they would have kept him in prison for their knee-jerk reaction. Yeah, that was a knee-jerk reaction to let the scumbag out. Mm -hmm. As he got older, Donald developed some health issues, which included diabetes, coronary heart disease, and chronic systolic heart failure. Is it wrong that I'm like, good? No, that's how I felt. At the time of his trial, Donald had two stents placed in his heart one in 2007, and one just mere days before his trial started, after he suffered a heart attack. His trial was delayed three days because of it. Due to his health condition, a registered nurse had to be present during the entirety of the trial. So he probably felt crappy during his trial too, and that made me happy. Because of his poor health, Donald's brother petitioned the court 
asking them to just let Donald die of natural causes and spare him the death penalty. He said that his brother was not a threat to anyone. What? Yeah, I say to that, I am sure Angie would have loved to have been able to grow old and die of natural causes. But your dirtbag brother took that away from her. Well, and it doesn't sound like he's not a threat to anybody if he's always making innuendos at the female guards and being rude. Yeah, he's totally demeaning and acts in a derogatory way towards all the women that he comes into contact with. He hasn't learned any lessons. No, he's 100% a threat. Just because he has the lack of opportunity doesn't mean that he's not a threat to society. For sure. I totally agree with you. It took him only a short period of time to find Angie after he was out of prison the first time. Right. And we know from researching other cases that just because a dirtbag is older does not make them less harmful. No, there's even been the few that start when they're older. Mm -hmm. A clinical psychologist, Dr. Mark P. Vegan, testified that he also did not think that Donald was at risk of posing future danger to others due to his age and declining health. Donald was age 62 in 2010 during the trial. The doctor also pointed out that aside from the broom and dustpan incident, Donald had not been violent in jail and never attempted to escape. I disagree. I think that for every day Donald was alive, he was a threat. And just a little unique side story about Donald's trial, which has nothing really to do with it, but I found interesting. During one of these days, testimonies had to be postponed for almost two hours because a bailiff accidentally discharged a canister of mace inside the courtroom. (laughs) He was bored during the trial and probably just flicking it on his belt. Maybe. But people were seen outside the courtroom like coughing and sneezing. That is pretty funny. Yeah. I've never heard of that during a trial. So I thought, oh, I have to put that in there. Do you remember how old was the mad chopper when they let him out of prison thinking, oh, he won't harm anybody? Wasn't he he in his 60s? Or 70s even. Yeah. Age does not mean they're not a threat. Absolutely. Bruce MacArthur was in his 60s. Yeah. Age and health should not play a factor at all. After an emotional trial, the jury deliberated for only an hour and came back with a guilty verdict against Donald Bess on June 18, 2010. When State District Judge Carter Thompson read out the guilty verdict, it was said that neither Donald nor Angie's family visibly reacted until the Samoda family were able to hug one another. During Donald's sentencing hearing, many other women came forward about rapes that he had committed against them. Angie's brother told the court how his sister's murder devastated him. He was eight years old when Angie was born and still struggles with her being gone. He said the crimes against his sister were, quote, ridiculously evil. He has daughters of his own, at the time ages 12 and 14, and he had a hard time not being overprotective. In 2010, he was still going to counseling over the impact of what had happened. Angie's sister said during the court proceedings, that she couldn't even bring herself to have children of her own after what happened to her little sister. Ugh, there's just so much devastation. There is so many victims in these kind of cases. The judge sentenced Donald to death. Donald appealed this judgment on July 5th, 2011 and March 6, 2013, but his appeals were denied. On August 13th, 2013, he petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court and was again denied. He tried again in April of 2016 to file an appeal with the Texas Court of Appeals, but he was thankfully refused. It is honestly shocking sometimes the nerve that a dirtbag can have trying to fight for his life when he so callously took someone else's. Just recently, on October 8th, 2022, the sun shone a little bit brighter 
when Donald Best died inside prison walls at the Allen B. Polunsky unit from a heart attack. Good riddance. Before we end, a few quick updates. Sheila decided to continue being a private investigator after justice was finally served for her friend, and it sounded like she was good at it. She has spoken out about her experience with Outlook's Joe Fidgen on the BBC World Service. She was also featured on a documentary titled I Solved a Murder, Episode 3 of Season 1. A lot of what I reported about her is straight from her own personal accounts. After Angie's trial, Sheila reached out to Russell Buchanan, the man who everyone thought killed Angie at the time of her murder and for years afterwards. She told him that she wanted to meet up with him and talk about the past. He agreed to meet with her, which I think speaks volumes about his character. Yeah, could you imagine how much animosity that you would harbor against somebody that promoted the idea that you were a murderer? Yeah, well, everyone, the police were saying, he's our guy, we just can't pin on him. I'm sure that had great impact on his life all this time, too. Oh, I'm sure it did. Anytime someone Googled his name, it would have been connected with the investigation. And especially when he was already a shy guy to begin with. Yes. Sheila had spent so much time hating Russell that she had to ask him for his forgiveness. Sheila said Russell built a really great life for himself and was doing well. She called him the most incredible human when he actually thanked her for being persistent in discovering the truth. His name was finally cleared. Like we said, that would have been so hard for him to be wrongfully accused of murder for 24 years. Mm -hmm. What really melted my heart was that Russell and Sheila went and visited Angie's grave together at the Llano Cemetery in Armorillo, Texas. Another cool update is that in 2016, the Dallas Police Department reestablished a unit dedicated to searching cold cases, so hopefully other cases like Angie's can be solved sooner. To end, I'm going to read the second half of a poem written by Angie herself titled, Through the Children's Eyes. It reads, Not knowing that grief will clutter inside of them all, when they age with the years, growing wiser and tall, when the love they get seems to fade slowly away, as the people they care for creep swiftly to lay, confused that the people must argue and fight about things so amazing as knowledge and might. Why must this world be so hard to discern? when the eyes of the children are looking to learn. And that is the story of an evil man who violently preyed on women without remorse, a man brought to justice years later by friendship, the make-you-want-to-throw-up-in-your-mouth, pathetic dirtbag, Donald Bess. Puke emoji. Absolutely. Blech. <laughs> you were right. There are no redeeming qualities about him. And it's just so frustrating that he was yet again another dirtbag that they could have taken off the streets long before he committed this murder. Yes. Angie should have been allowed to live a long, beautiful life. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure she would have. It seems like she was the type of person not to take a moment for granted. And Sheila does really deserve a cape. She absolutely is a hero. But that's it for me today, listeners. We hope that you'll be able to have a wonderful week and join us when Melissa has another case. Until then, see ya. Bye. We're glad you're joining us this week. Christy has got an opposite an opposite episode for us. <laughs> it's not true crime. <laughs> it's puppy dog talk. <laughs> it's happy.
happy rainbows and butterflies. We're going to do an uplifting episode today. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. We're not. (laughs) No, not at all. That's not what you come and see us for. Born on September 19th, 1964th. 64th? Were you born in 1964th? No, not even thought of. My mom was too. (laughs) (laughs) You weren't even a twinkle in the eye yet. (laughs) Did I say that weird? Yep. Okay. I hate him. I hate this guy. I hate this guy. I hate this guy. I hate him. (laughs) What? Nothing. I'm already like, is it this guy? I know. I can see your wheels wheels turning and you're like... (laughs) Don't tell people that. <laughs> I'm cutting that out. <laughs> we don't want people to know that. Even Do you... after doing this podcast, you still don't? No. I'm not telling you all the answers. <laughs> I'm just letting you think about it. <laughs> Is he the stranger? <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> Itchy shoulder, but I don't want to hit my, <laughs> my mic. <laughs> oh, I hit it. Oh, I think just a little. After all that work. Yeah. I didn't even itch it good. Okay. Itch it good. <laughs> itch it real good. <laughs> hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now, but we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. We all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.